welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good evening. Kia ora. I, um, when I was a little guy, a little fella, I used to sit myself down in front of our stereo at home get out the big cans, the headphones, plug myself in. And um, I used to put on CDs and listen to musicals. Yep, just a confession. Just want to start with that confession that, yes, I listened to musicals. And I had a favourite. It was Les Mis. Les Mis was the go-to uh, musical for me. Every now and again, I did a foray into, like, Phantom of Opera. <laughs> compared, like, this is a great story. And there's this one, one song for me, highlight of the whole thing. There's some great songs throughout, but one song... Is uh, sung by Eponine as she puts her guts out there and just sings from her heart. It's called On My Own. Great song, and this is uh, a great musical until Russell Crowe kind of got involved. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so this is pre Russell Crowe days, and the singing was pretty good, and the song was great, and um, I used to enjoy sitting there and singing along. That's what, that's what I did. I used to sing along. And um, but there's something about musicals. Like if you take just these songs, like just on my own, you think you just push play and listen to it. It just it's a good song. I mean, but it just makes more sense and just feel the weight and the emotion of the song when you, you hear it in the context and the and the telling of the whole story. When you you know when you get to it, uh, so long as Russell Crowe's out of the way, when you get to it amidst the story of Les Mis, it just oh you can feel the weight of it and. Uh, there's something just, um, it's just better. It's better to hear that song amidst the whole story. It's kind of like the greatest hits albums that I've bought. Lenny Kravitz, greatest hits. Lenny Kravitz writes brilliant songs, but his greatest hits album is just terrible because what it does is it takes all these moments in time and just puts them in an album and sells them and tries to make money. And what Lenny's done is he has written songs that are kind of framed by a time of his life. And each, each of his albums has got a little story going on. Um, when it comes to the Bible, I quite often read it in greatest hits mode. I read little bit by little bit, little bit by little bit. And sometimes I forget to think about the whole story or to hear it in the whole context. And if you're anything like me, you will probably find it pretty hard to sit down and read the whole of this in one go and get the weight of the story as we get to everything. But it's hard enough even to sit down and read one whole book. Um, so we hit it and we, we dig in and we try to hear what's going on. But sometimes we need to hear what the story is and try to feel the weight as we get to certain um, favorites, greatest hits of ours, if you like. My hair always, always knocks us around, eh? Get a haircut. <laughs> I can hear Kerry saying that now. Get a haircut. Anyway, my brother. Um, I've got the task of wrapping up the series in the Beatitudes by looking at our final two verses this evening. We've heard them a bunch of times, but here the final two verses read like this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Instead of looking at the topic of persecution this evening, I want to try and do something a little bit different. Last week, if you missed Chris's uh, talk last Sunday morning, he uh, went there, he talked about persecution, and man, he made us think. 
It was hard hitting. It was, uh, wow, it was really impacting. So I feel like we've talked about persecution as such. But um, tonight I want to try and just get to that text a little bit of a different way. So what I want to do is I want to consider Matthew as an artist, Matthew as a literary genius, and look at how he's pieced together his story of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, because I think it's masterful. And how he's interpreted these events, uh, in, in his telling of it, he portrays something to us, something profound, pertinent. His angle, his slant on the telling of the story holds within it a story and a message itself. Matthew is writing into a pluralistic context, a world in which ideologies were competing and the church was immersed within this culture, needing encouragement, needing instruction and needing theological grounding. And Matthew seeks to deliver on these things through his gospel account. So we're gonna approach tonight, we're gonna do Uh, this way. We're going to first look at the Matthew's big story. What's going on? What's the musical, the kind of musical that he's trying to write? What's the main themes in that? Second, we're going to take notice of a subplot that he weaves through his telling of the story. And because I think that subplot is helpful for how we live and it helps us to get to the Beatitudes just in a slightly different way. And thirdly, we're going to turn our attention to the Beatitudes themselves and look in particular at verses 11 and 12. And by doing it this way, I'm hoping that we'll feel something of the weight of verses 11 and 12 or a weight of the Beatitudes uh, when we get there. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us tonight. Give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. Ask that you would uh, take these words, allow the, the ones that you are speaking through to, to pierce our hearts and the ones that are just of me to fall away. You encounter us as we stand in your presence, so we ask that you would speak and encounter and shape us tonight. As you have, as we've sung, as you will, as we smile and meet each other, we want to meet you in the text and in the word tonight. Amen. Amen. So let's start. Let's start by zooming out, away from the Beatitudes as such. What is Matthew trying to tell? What is Matthew, the storyteller, the artist, trying to tell us? What's his big story? Matthew begins with a genealogy. If you've got your Bibles, it's really helpful to pick them up right now and start scroll. I was going to say flick through and start scrolling through the the um, chapters, because it's re- we're going to do a quick little fast forward through. So he starts with the genealogy. More oh, genealogies. We go to numbers. We get really, really bored reading genealogies. Genealogies just aren't that much fun. But Matthew, he is trying to do something with his genealogy. He has a couple of profound things, important things to say. Matthew, with his genealogy, he begins with Abraham. That's important. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to connect, connect the life of Jesus with Abraham, with Israel, with Israel's story, the identity and mission of Israel. Matthew is claiming that Jesus and all who follow him are intricately connected to what's going on in Israel and what's his story, this Israel story. Matthew also highlights the exile as he lists through the generations. By doing this, he is also making another statement. He is saying, before Christ, Israel was in exile. They were dwelling in darkness. And then we keep going. We have another little flick through here. And we see that in the darkness, 
the promises of God are being conceived by the power of this Holy Spirit. Mary gives birth to the one who will save his people from the sins. And this sets the tone for the rest of what the claims that Matthew is making, the story that he is telling. And then we look a little bit further and we see that in order to escape Herod, Jesus, well, he was an infant, so his family take him to Egypt. And like the nation of Israel, uh, Jesus is called out of Egypt to be God's chosen instrument. We flick again, we have a little bit further of a read and we see that Israel went, as, as Israel went through the uh, Red Sea, Jesus is baptized. And at his baptism, a spirit, the spirit comes down upon him and the voice affirms his calling and his authority. And we flick a little further and we see that straight after his baptism, he's sent out into the wilderness for 40 days. And here he survives not on human bread, but on the words of God. The parallels, if you know Israel's story, are amazing. They are astounding. Matthew is clearly, clearly stating that this Jesus embodies Israel. Jesus is the new Exodus. Again and again, we read the phrase, if you keep going, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophets. Jesus is pictured as the fulfillment of every messianic hope that Israel had. He is none other than God with us. He is Emmanuel, God with his people. So we have the nation pictured as lost in exile. We have Jesus pictured as the fulfillment of every messianic hope. Should we not be surprised that as we a little flick one more page and we get, I don't know how many pages you've got and you, I've flicked a few, you probably just pushed your finger around. But as we, we get, we see that Jesus begins his ministry. And we shouldn't be surprised then that, that the, the text reads like this. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus begins his earthly ministry. The light has come. And he announces these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn around, change your minds. Because heaven has begun to break into earth. Jesus, the new exodus, has, been, has arrived. And immediately after this, we see the most unlikely, the outsiders called to follow. We see sick, healed, demonized, delivered. Light has dawned. And so we turn, for me, it's just a little further down the page, and we see that Matthew places Jesus on a mountain. Think Israel's story again, Moses on a mountain. Jesus on a mountain teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, the, um, <clears throat> and that is where we get to our Beatitudes. So we're going to pause there for a moment. We're going to flick a whole bunch of pages this way. You might just need to look up the top of your screen and hit whatever you need to hit. So you get Matthew chapter 28, the very, very end of Matthew, and we read these famous words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew started his claim with this idea that the one who was going to save his people from their sins had come. Here we finish and we see through his story that Matthew has told, we see that Jesus is the liberator from sin. The one who was affirmed by the voice of baptism is the one that now has all authority. The angels in the early account 
promised this child that would be God with us. And here we read that God will be with us to the end of the age. And importantly, Matthew started with Abraham. And he finishes with sending out his disciples. And this is no accident. Abraham, we read in Genesis chapter 12, was blessed to be a blessing. He was chosen so that the nations would come to know Christ. Israel was to keep this calling alive. Israel was meant to be a blessing to the world around us, a witness to declare the goodness of God. And so we get Jesus sending out his disciples on mission, and we become aware that Israel's mission, Abraham's mission, that is our mission. We are the people of God, still called to the mission of God to bless the nations. Now, that is like the most lightweight, gloss over Matthew's text you could ever have because we've like we've only dealt with the beginning and the end. We've kind of missed out a huge chunk in the middle and um, it doesn't really do it justice. What I'm trying to say, what I want you to hear tonight is that Matthew's account is intentionally soaked in the symbolic world of Israel and it is deeply connected to Israel's story because that's important for us to know. We'll get to that later. Why is he telling it this way? Why has he chosen to tell it in such a Jewish way? Why, what is his agenda? What's he, go, what's he going for? One reason for this telling is that there is likely a synagogue just down the road. And at the synagogue, there'll be Pharisees who practice Torah rigorously. And they understand themselves as the people of God. And many of these Pharisees down the road were hostile and abusive, and sought to kill and destroy the young church. We need only to read Paul's early years to get an idea of the animosity that the Pharisees felt towards the Christians, those who confessed that Jesus is Lord. It was a bold claim to make in that environment. The Pharisees, they claimed to be the true people of God. And Matthew introduces us to them in a quite unique way through John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, this wilderness wandering prophet, immediately calls their legitimacy into question. And we read it in Matthew 3. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What Matthew is doing in his big story is attempting to define the church over against the Pharisees. Matthew's narrative aims to locate the church within Israel's story in order to affirm that those who are in Christ are the true people of God, not the Pharisees. He sought to provide a theological grounding for the church within history, a history that has found its turning point in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. So the big story, the musical, if we want to call it that, is telling us, obviously it's telling us about Jesus. Clearly it's telling us about Jesus. He is our main character. And, but importantly for us tonight, he's telling, it in, he's telling this Jesus story in a way that confirms and affirms our mission and our identity. The church are the people of God, blessed to be a blessing, sent out to be a witness to the nations. So we zoom in a little further. We took a wide lens coming in a little bit and we want to see what's going on. There's a subplot happening. He's a genius, this literary genius, Matthew, and he's not only telling the big story well, 
but he's also weaving our subplot. And the subplot provides instruction. How are we to live as Jesus' followers? What's our spirituality look like? So the subplot is Jesus versus Pharisees. It's like fight the whole way, just a a bit of a battle going on, battle scenes the whole way through it. So these Pharisees, we've heard a little bit about them, but who were they? They They were a bunch who were reasonably numerous, widespread and influential. And the average Jew looked to these Pharisees as teachers, as faithful Israelites, as models of Torah observance to be emulated. The Pharisees were committed to very strict observance of Torah, Torah being the law of God revealed to Moses in the beginning of the nation. In response to this Roman occupation and the pagan gods that came with it, uh, the, 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 the Pharisees interpreted Torah to the extreme. They intensified it so that it governed every single part of the Jewish life, believing that this would purify them and ready their nation for the Messiah. When it came to the word of God, they thought they were experts. So of all the Gospels, Matthew is the most hostile towards these Pharisees. Matthew's subplot pitches Jesus versus Pharisees. And right in the middle of this is the confrontation. What it centers on is a confrontation upon the interpretation of Torah. Matthew arranges Jesus' teachings in such a way as to speak directly to the issue and undermine what the Pharisees say. So, We cannot understate the importance of this one verse, Matthew 5, and what Matthew is trying to tell us. Matthew 5, 17 reads like this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law, completes the law. And in this text, the word fulfilled also has a sense of reveal. Jesus comes to reveal to us the heart of the law, what the law was always meant to be about. He's come to reveal to us the kingdom of God. The Pharisees had made it into rules, 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 more rules, lists of do's and do nots. They thought they had it nailed, but Jesus comes and he turns it upside down or maybe right way up. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. I say, don't even get angry. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, don't even look at a woman lustfully. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, turn the other cheek. He's interpreting it differently. And at every turn, we see Jesus rallying against them. He calls them hypocrites, blind guides, serpents, murderers. We can hear the polemic Um, In this section of text in chapter 6 on the Sermon of the Mount, he says it like there's three little statements that kind of unveil what's going on a little bit in the intent. Jesus' teaching reads like this. Do you think I've come... Well, that was the other one, eh? Reads like this, chapter 6, where he's in the Sermon of the Mount. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Jesus is having a go. And it's because Pharisees, the Pharisees had made an external show of religion. They had ramped up the rules and they had reduced the word of God 
the words that were meant to liberate and humanize, they'd reduced them to a heavy burden that oppressed the people. They bolstered their own egos while they shut the, king, the door to the kingdom and shut people out. And as we read through this narrative that Matthew is telling us, we see that Jesus again and again includes the outsider, the sinner, the leper, the tax collector, the Pharisees hated on it. It provokes them. And the subplot, if you like, that Matthew is weaving through kind of comes to a head in Matthew chapter 23. And Jesus just lets loose at them. It's a series of woe statements. Woe. That's a cool word. Woe. Chapter 23, it is not pretty reading. It is really not pretty reading. And here's a little highlight. It says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. It's an indictment. They failed to internalize God's law and allow it to shape their hearts. They thought greatness was about the seat of honor, about lording it over people. They failed to see that he who humbles himself will be exalted. That the greatest is actually servant of all. What we see is there is no evidence that the kingdom of heaven had gripped a hold of their hearts. And Matthew chapter 23 provides the antithesis for chapter five, the Beatitudes that we've been dwelling in and looking at over the past number of weeks. Woe to you statements over against blessed are you statements. Matthew, again our artist, crafting his story, has placed this fight, Pharisees, Jesus fight, between two landmarks in his text, blessing and cursing, Beatitudes, woes. One describes what happens to human beings when the good news grabs a hold of their heart. The other describes quite the opposite. And if we flick, if we pick up our text, we flick all the way back to Deuteronomy near the beginning of our scriptures, what we see is we find, we find Moses and he's presenting the people of God two ways, blessings and cursings, life and death, life and He says, by internalizing God's word and letting it produce kingdom qualities or death by attempting to live by bread alone and rejecting God's living, life-giving words. Matthew is doing the same. Same thing that Moses was doing. Between blessing and curses, Matthew has placed the embodiment of Torah, the revelation of God, the word made flesh. It's this Jesus, not the Pharisees, that is to be emulated. Jesus is the authentic interpreter, the fulfillment, and he shows us how to live. So Matthew's saying, let him grip your heart, and as you do, the recreating reign of God will invade your world, and a new type of humanity will emerge within you, and it will look something like this, merciful, gentle, peacemaker, pure in heart, and you'll discover greatness in serving. So our subplot, Jesus versus Pharisees, framed by these blessings and curses, connects the Beatitude text to what Moses was doing earlier on. A choice, life or death, before being sent into a new land. Can you hear the invitation Matthew's getting at? Choose to embody God's word and make it 
and choose to embody God's word and become a community of the blessed, become a community in sync with God's reign. Paul might have put it like this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Moses probably would have put it more like this, don't let your heart be turned away. Eat the words. Choose life. So subplot and big story are working together. Totally symbolic in their telling. And Matthew tells the Jesus story in a way to speak to our identity and our mission. That's the big story. Through that story, he places this fight that speaks to our spirituality. He is saying, internalize the revelation, internalize the living word of God and let it grip your heart. So we zoom back in a little further. Back to the Beatitudes. Back to the ones we've been looking at over the last little while. And this series, as we have unpacked, has been brilliant. We've heard so many good things said, so many cool little angles on the words being used. And what we have come to understand is that the word blessed here is far more than just happy. It's not just happy. It's maybe better understood as in sync or in alignment. So in sync with the kingdom of heaven and the poor in spirit. Those who know they are utterly dependent. In sync with the reign of God are those who mourn, those who grieve the death and brokenness of the world and the depravity of their own sin. So can we say, in sync with the kingdom of heaven are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? Well, in sync with God often means out of sync with the world. In sync with God often means out of sync with the world. And our little verse here continues and says, For the, so they persecuted the prophets uh, um, who were before you. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Prophets attract persecution. It only takes a glance through our scriptures to see that prophet after prophet was marginalized, reviled, maligned. Noah was mocked and ridiculed. Elijah ran for his life, hid in a cave. Dave, uh, Dave, do we just call him Dave? Dave, Dave, Dave was found in a cave. He was crying out to God. I reckon we can call them Matt and Dave. Anyway, Stephen was stoned to death because he called out and he cried and confessed that Jesus is Lord. And then we get to Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet. He is, what an example of a prophet. And Jeremiah is a prophet who has internalized the, thoroughly the God's words. God's words. He had allowed them to get right into his bones. It says that he, they burned within him. When your words came, Jeremiah says, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. And because of this, Jeremiah made those around him deeply uncomfortable. His message and his lifestyle exposed their religion as a sham. Israel loved the false prophets. They loved the prophets that would say nice things and turn a blind eye to their darkness. And God says in chapter uh, six of Jeremiah, they dress the wounds of my people as though it was not serious. Peace, peace, they say, but there is no peace. Their religion was simply positive slogans that made everyone feel really good. Jeremiah was not swayed by this tide of popular religion. He was not swayed by the crowds that went to the temple but did not allow the words to change them. Jeremiah lived in alignment with words from God and this put him out of alignment with those who loved their darkness. And he 
received abuse, beaten, imprisoned, put in stocks, chained, completely alienated and maligned. Mortimer Arius made this remark, profound. The arrival of the kingdom produces a crisis. It is like a sword that draws a dividing line and cuts through the most intimate and sacred relationships and loyalties and subordinates any former value or commitment. The kingdom is reversal and as such, the permanent subverter of all human orders. Daryl Johnson simply says it like this. The gospel always messes with idols. The Beatitude community, the one that we're trying to become is a prophetic community. It is a people who live lives that can't help but cause people to ask questions. Lives that can't help but challenge cultural norms. Lives that expose dehumanizing systems of oppression. Lives that point to the beauty of the world and the truth that is out there. The Beatitude community is a community that through word and action speaks hope into dark places. So as we let the word, the, 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 our hearts be gripped by this good news, as we let our hearts be gripped by the story of that the reign of God has broken into the world in and through Jesus and all will be made right again, as we let this grip our hearts, we begin to look and smell and sound like a blessed community, a beatitude people. Our priorities look different. Our spending will look different. We will not bow down to the idols of consumer culture like our friends or neighbours, perhaps. We will seek to restore dignity to those who have squandered it. We will be a community of non-conformists, a people who disturb the status quo. When we hear these Beatitudes within Matthew's big story, we come to understand that Beatitudes as a, a subversive text. They turn things upside down. They mess with our idols. John, in his gospel, paints the situation like this. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. The light has come. That is good news. But oh, how the darkness clings on and how it refuses to let go. In a world that loves darkness, our identity and our mission cause us to be salt and light. That is the task of the prophetic community. Jesus, directly after our text in the Beatitudes, says these words, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Beatitudes, subversive as they are, don't just speak to the darkness out there. They, they, they speak perhaps even more so to the darkness in here, to confront it, to topple the Pharisee in me. When I shut the door to the poor, the lonely, the outsider. When I practice outward observance while neglecting inner transformation. When I think I can do this all on my own and refuse to acknowledge that I am utterly dependent upon God, I'm a Pharisee, alone with my idols. See, Jesus, he welcomed the sinner, the cripple, the sick, the leper, the prostitute, the outcast, the tax collector. And because of this, the religious elite 
not only persecuted him, they pierced his hands and feet and they hung him on a tree. In sync with the reign of God means out of sync with man-made religion. In sync with the reign of God means out of sync with religion on our own terms. Accused as heretics, thrown, into, uh, thrown out of synagogues, pursued, beaten, imprisoned, murdered. Jesus had predicted that this was going to happen to his followers. Speaking to the Pharisees in that woe is chapter, he says these words. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. This was going to happen. And this was the reality of the young church. They were facing this kind of activity. So with Jesus' words, blessed are you when you're reviled and people persecute you. Matthew is encouraging his audience, reassuring them that what they're experiencing is what to be expected. It was the result of being the people of God, bearing witness, proclaiming that the light has come. Light has dawned. Now, we do not experience what we heard about last Sunday morning, the violence, the persecution, the atrocities against Christians. It was hard-hitting. It was shocking. We do not experience what these Matthew's original audience had to face. And we are thankful for that, and we will praise God for that, and we should continue to thank God for that. Yet it is easy for us, at the sound of the word persecution, just to switch off and think, oh, it doesn't apply to us. But I think Matthew's story has implications upon us. It should cause us at the very least to think, am I more in sync with my culture or with the kingdom of God? What has really gripped my heart? The way Matthew has crafted his account of the Jesus story causes us to hear the Beatitudes as a subversive and sending text. Words to shape a people, words to send a people. Matthew's encouragement amidst persecution affirms our calling, salt and light. So like Matthew's original audience, I believe that we need to be reminded of who we are. We are the people of God. In this world of competing ideologies, in this world that seeks to tell us who we are, I believe tonight we need to know who we are. We're the people of God. The people of God in Christ. Being in Christ means we are a sent people. We've, the people of God have always been a sent out people. And like Matthew's original audience, I believe tonight that we need to be reminded that how we live this faith, how we do Christian spirituality is by letting the words into us, the revelation of God into us, the word made flesh into our hearts and to allow it to fashion us and to change us from the inside out. To change us into a prophetic community who do not fit into our culture without thinking about it. 
Mortimer Arias says this. He's obviously got a lot of good things to say. The coming of the kingdom means a permanent confrontation of worlds. The kingdom is a question mark in the midst of the established ideas and answers developed by people and societies. The kingdom is a question mark. If the kingdom is a question mark, then can I ask, what questions will our lives cause people to ask? And what about us as a community, as a church, as a gathering? What questions will Hamilton ask because of the kingdom at work among us? Why don't we stand? So in and through the person of Jesus, the future has broken in to the present age. The world's old order is giving way to the reign of God. The light has dawned. The day is coming. Therefore, let us, you, you, salt and light, the beatitude people, go and turn the world upside down or maybe right side up. Let's respond. Worship. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.